You're listening to the Hope Assembly podcast with Pastor Ryan Day. For more information, you can visit us online at hopeassembly.org. Please enjoy this week's sermon. We have been walking through this acronym of pray, and uh, from Pete Gregg's book, How to Pray, how to pray um, is uses sort of as our outline um, of how we're going, and he uses pray as an acronym, and it started with this idea of to pause. That we all need to take time to pause, um, set time aside uh, to spend with the Lord. Um, the R was rejoice. That we need to learn how to rejoice in the Lord always. The Apostle Paul said, "Rejoice in the Lord always." And again, I say, "Rejoice." How do we do that? Um, so we walk through that, and then the last. Three weeks we've been going through the A, which was ask. What does it look like to intercede for our city, to intercede for our family members and friends, pray for other people's needs? What does it look like to petition the Lord for our own needs? And last week we walked through just briefly, uh, what does it look like or how do we deal with unanswered prayers when it seems like God doesn't even hear what we're praying for? How do we walk through those things and still honor God when we're struggling with, uh, do you hear me? He does hear us, but sometimes he doesn't answer how we would like, amen? But he hears us. And so we talked about that last week. Today, we're moving on to the why of pray. And the next three weeks will be this why, which is yield, is yield. And before I get there, Walter Brueggemann said this. He said, we pray because our life comes from God and we yield it back in prayer. Prayer is a great antidote to the illusion that we are self-made. And we've talked about this a lot here about this idea of being self-sovereigns and I want, this is why we struggle sometimes with unanswered prayers because we think we prayed the perfect prayer. So surely God will answer it as we prayed it, right? If, if I had it my way, this is how God would answer this prayer. And what that just reveals is that I usually like to just control things myself. I prefer to be a self-sovereign oftentimes. I have to repent from that and say, Lord, you be Lord of my life. You know better than I know. Um, and so today we're going to talk about yielding to the Lord. And the word yield means to surrender or submit oneself to another. Pretty simple to surrender or relinquish to the physical control of another. As Pete Gregg would say in his book, surrender is sort of the final step in the dance of prayer. We've been walking through the Lord's Prayer, and uh, we'll recite it together here in a minute, but just prepare yourself. We're gonna, the words will be up here, but we're going to recite it together. Um, we've been reciting this Lord's Prayer, but we've been walking through the different aspects of the Lord's Prayer, and, he, and he's saying, listen, this last part of the Lord's Prayer is about yielding. It's sort of the final step in the dance of prayer. How do we surrender or submit ourselves unto the Lord in our prayer lives? Um, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I show up to my prayer closet with lots of needs and petitions and God, I need you to do this and I need you to do that. And did you hear about this? And what about that? And, and um, sometimes I'll leave my prayer closet and forget this whole idea of like, I need to surrender to you, yield my life to you. Um, a great scripture about this idea of surrender is in Romans chapter 12, uh, as Paul's writing to the church in Rome, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, many of us probably know this verse very well, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, so I'd encourage you to go back and read the couple chapters before, because he's saying, like, take it into consideration, everything that I've shared with you up to this point, I'm now appealing to you that you, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
What is he saying there? I want you to yield your life over to the Lord. Yield as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right? So it's just a great way to sort of, if we're looking for like, okay, Lord, where do I start when it comes to surrendering my life to you? Where do I start when it comes to yielding over to you? This is a great simple verse that says, hey, offer your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before the Lord. I, I like the way the message version puts it. It's a uh, Eugene Peterson did a beautiful job of sort of writing the story of God. It's written more in a story form. Um, some people would argue that it's not even a version of the Bible. It's just sort of a, a, a paraphrasing of the scriptures. Uh, but I love what he says here. He says, so here's what I want you to do. Paraphrasing Romans 12.1. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping. You're eating. You're going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Place it before God as an offering. Eugene Peterson's like a pastor's pastor. I mean, this guy spent a lot of time in scripture just really digging through to say, how can we say this in a way that pastors can help their congregations catch what's being said here? And I love that just simplification of it. You're eating, you're sleeping, you're going to work, you're walking around, just your daily life, lay it before the Lord as an offering. Yield to the Lord. Yield to him in prayer. So we get through all of our, uh, all of our petitioning of the Lord and seeking after him for all these things. We have to remember that ultimately what we want to do is we want to yield to him. We want to say, whatever happens, God, whatever this day may bring, God, I just give you my life as an offering. Do with me what you will. Amen. Amen. Now, we've been walking through Luke chapter 11, um, all the way through the, the Lord's Prayer. And in the beginning of Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, it says Jesus was praying in a certain place. He had a specific place. Regularly, he would go to different places, certain places to pray, to seek the Father. He set a precedent of going to a place, having a place to seek and pray. And we talked about creating places where we can seek the Lord to pause and get into his presence. And of course, he's omnipresent. You can, you can be in the presence of the Lord anywhere, for sure. But there's something about having a place where you can go and regularly meet with the Lord. And Jesus came from this certain place. And when he finished, um, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say. And we've talked about this over and over again. That Jesus, when they asked him to teach them to pray, taught them in the original language about a 31-word prayer. That most people believe had a rhyme to it. So it was easy to remember and easy to recite. He said, when you pray, say, and let's repeat it together. He taught him this, which is known as our Father, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, say it with me, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I know it's a little bit outside of our normal, you know, what we, we don't normally recite things together, but it's good for us. It's good for us. I've been encouraging us to memorize this prayer. Um, 
when I was when I was growing up in the church, we were taught like that this shouldn't be recited. It's more of like a a a, a structure in which to pray. And the older I've gotten and the more I've served the Lord 30 years now of living for the Lord, the more I recognize it's both and. It's both and. There's something beautiful about it. I've set it up on my phone at noon. Every day at noon, my phone, the alarm goes off and the alarm is titled Our Father. And so no matter what I'm doing, the alarm goes off and I look at it and I see Our Father and it reminds me. And I just slowly work my way through just reciting the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing magical about it. What I'm doing is just intentionally recentering my heart in the middle of my day back to the Lord. Amen? So I'd encourage you to, to memorize it because it's hard to do, you know, try to pull it out. If you memorize it, then wherever you're at. I've been in meetings and I'm meeting with somebody and we're sipping coffee and in the back of my head while we're talking, I'm reciting the Lord's Prayer and remembering that even this meeting belongs to him. So today we're going to talk about the forgive us as we forgive part of the Lord's Prayer. When yielding, the forgive us as we forgive part. Or the message says, keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Like keep us in a mode, in a process, in a practice of asking for forgiveness and also giving forgiveness. Stanley Hauerwas said this, he said, right here, that this part of the Lord's Prayer is where the Lord's Prayer is most difficult to pray. Perhaps that is why it is the longest and most involved petition in the Lord's Prayer. I was meditating on just that quote about it, you know. I'm thinking about, oh, you know, our Father art in heaven, that's easy. Like I can, good, yes, hallowed be thy name. I believe that. You are worthy of honor and glory, Right? That kingdom come, thy will be done, that just rolls right off the tongue. Like the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That feels really good to say. Give us this day our daily bread. Yes, I have things I need, don't you? That's easy. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those, whatever version you want, those who've trespassed against us. It's a little bit more of a mouthful and also causes a little bit more of a pause because what sins am I asking for forgiveness for? And how do I engage other people who have sinned against me? Am I really willing to forgive? It presents some issues, some struggles, some wrestling in it. And, and uh, so let's walk through just a few elements of how do we walk through this piece of forgive us as we forgive, forgive us as we forgive. And I think the first place we should start is with contemplation. And contemplation is all about the presence of God again. When we're in prayer, we need to find ourselves in a place where we can contemplate his presence. And it's important that we start here because we don't want to rush on over to just, oh, forgive me, forgive them, forgive us, it's good. No, we need God's presence in order to move into true repentance and the ability to reconcile with others. So the first step in yielding to the Lord in prayer is contemplation. And we talked earlier about contemplative prayer, and this is similar to that, but a little bit different. We're, we're contemplating the presence of the Lord for a specific purpose, 
here. Contemplative prayer is where I literally just sit and just contemplate the goodness of God and his presence, try to eliminate all of the distractions and meditate just on God's presence. And that's, a, that's one way just to pray. This part of contemplation is a setup for where we're going to yield to the Lord. And the only way I can yield to the Lord really is if I take some time to contemplate who is this that I'm yielding to. So it's very similar to contemplative prayer in that we are, we are beginning to yield and we're beginning to center our thoughts on his presence. This is difficult oftentimes because you probably, like me, have thoughts constantly racing through your mind. We live in such an um, information age, and it's just like so much information readily available to us, right? Like we can't even memorize phone numbers anymore because it's all like stored in our phone. That's not a, necessarily a bad thing, but like trying to, trying to access different parts of our brain and quiet other things, sometimes deep thinking and deep contemplation is really difficult to access because we're so used to flipping through commercials and channels and social media and all this stuff just constantly bombarding us. We have to have the radio on or we have to be multitasking. But here in this moment of yielding, we want to settle and quiet and center ourselves on the presence of God. And when we center ourselves or recenter ourselves on him in that place, we want to remind ourselves a few things about God. We want to remind ourselves that he loves us. We want to remind ourselves that he's for us. We want to remind ourselves that he wants to come and meet with us, that he wants to bring his presence and meet with us in this place, that he's not afar off, he's not aloof to what's going on in our lives, but that God wants to be near to us. And when we center ourselves or recenter ourselves and contemplate his presence, this is what we're trying to do, remind ourselves that God is with us and for us and loves us. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote a, uh, a hymnal, and the, one of the last lines of one of the hymnals he wrote was, Lost in wonder, love, and praise. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. This is what this looks like when we contemplate the presence of God. We want to find ourselves in that moment lost in wonder, love, and praise. His presence in our midst. And when we meditate in his presence and we meditate on his goodness, what happens is we begin to saturate our consciousness, our hearts in his love. And when we saturate ourselves in his love, what inevitably happens is we become more like him. The more we spend in his presence, the more we become like him. And we have to remember, this is so important because the presence of God is the great differentiator for us. So, so the great differentiator is not, well, we have the Bible and it has truth and so we have the truth and so that sets us apart from all of you. We, we believe that the Bible is truth for sure. But the scripture over and over again talks about the differentiator for us is not so much that we have hardcore truth. We know all the answers but rather that God's presence is with us. Uh, take Moses, for example, in Exodus, right? And God is saying to Moses, like, I'm gonna let you and the children, I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm gonna let you and the children of Israel go and inherit the land, but I'm not gonna go with you, okay? Because you're stiff-necked people, uh, you're rebellious, you, uh, you just, you, I, you can't handle it. Like, you cannot, if I go with you, I'm just gonna get pretty frustrated with how you rebel against me regularly, and this is not gonna end well for you right? 
And uh, Moses is like, no, no, we need you to go with us. Matter of fact, in 33, Exodus 33, 14, 16, he says, he cries out and he says, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, do not lead us up from here. He goes on to say, for how then can it be known that your people and I have found favor in your sight unless you go with us? And then he says this, how else will we be distinguished from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses' concern was that the presence of God would go with them so that others would know that God is with them, that it would set them apart among the people. He wasn't concerned about the clothes that they were wearing that would set them apart, the laws that they were following that would set them apart. No, your presence, God, is what people will see that, is, that, that sets us apart from everybody else. And so when we get into contemplation with the Lord in our prayer, to yield in Him, we contemplate. We're contemplating because we need that presence of God to help set us apart. And once that begins to happen, then we move from contemplating into listening. Listening. Anybody have seen that meme with the little kid? Linda, listen, listen, Linda, Linda, listen. Anybody seen that little kid? Cute little kid. He's talking to his mom, I'm assuming. He's calling her by her first name. He's like, listen, Linda, 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 listen, listen. How many know sometimes it's really, really hard to listen? Anybody? One of my least favorite things is to go into a store or, or a restaurant or whatever, uh, Chipotle, namely, a couple of times a week. And... And the person's, hey, welcome into Chipotle. And they're not really paying attention to me. They're, they're, they're busy, which is totally cool. Like I get service industry. I'm not mad at them, but they're totally busy. And they, they keep asking the same question because they're not listening to the answer. What would you like? Well, I would like a soft taco, two soft tacos, white rice, chicken. Okay, what kind of rice would you like on that, sir? Like two soft tacos with white rice and chicken. Would you like any beans on that? No, thank you. White rice and chicken. Okay. What kind of meat did you want on that? Chicken. You know what I'm saying? They're just not, they're not listening. And um, we think it's funny, but we can be this way in prayer when it comes to yielding. We like go before the Lord, like I would like you know, these things, and, and he's trying to speak back to us. He's trying to nudge us in certain ways. He's trying to talk to us about our day and uh, what we did or didn't, what we have, what's going on. And we're just like, well, I got some things to do, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm busy. I don't have time to listen. But really, we need to be listening people. Soren Kierkegaard said, a man prayed, and at first he thought that prayer was talking, but he came more and more quiet until in the end he realized that prayer was listening. Contemplation is about the presence of God. Listening is about the posture that we take for God. What sort of posture do we have in his presence, in particular while we're yielding to him? Is our posture about the things that we need him to do for us or is our posture about listening to what he has in store for us? Most people miss the voice of God not because it's too strange, but because it's all too familiar. I was thinking about that, you know, the story of, in the Old Testament, the story of Eli, and, and you know, it brought Samuel to be dedicated to the Lord, just a, a child, to be raised in the presence of the Lord. And Eli, um, the, the priest, is, is training him in the things of the Lord. And at night, 
um, uh, Samuel has this, this vision. He hears this voice. And he gets up and he runs into Eli. He's like, you called. And he's like, Eli's like, I, I didn't call you. What do you mean I, call, I didn't call you? Go back to bed. <laughs> he goes back to bed and it happens again. He hears the voice again. He, he, he gets up and he runs into Eli. He's like, you called. He's like, I didn't call you. And then all of a sudden, Eli realizes what's going on, that the Lord is trying to speak to Samuel. But Samuel hears the, the familiarness of the voice, almost as if it's Eli's voice. And if Eli didn't catch us, Samuel maybe would have missed what God was speaking because it was so familiar that he thought, well, Samuel or Eli was talking to him rather than the Lord was talking to him. And Eli says, listen, go back. And when you hear it again, say that the servant listens and hear what the Lord is speaking to you. And God reveals to him uh, some key things about his life and about Israel in that moment. And sometimes that can be us. We're so familiar with the voice of God. God's trying to speak to us through different avenues and areas. And we just think it's just, it's just he's not God. It's just, uh, just normal, everyday life just happening. And so we don't focus in on what's happening. We don't choose to listen to what's being said because it's just too familiar. So we need to learn how to posture ourselves and tune our ears, tune our hearts into the Lord. What is the Lord saying? How do we listen to God in our prayer times when we're yielding to him? And the question isn't whether God is a speaking God. The question is whether we are a listening people. I think, um, you know, all throughout scripture, it's pretty clear that God wants to speak. We open up all of canon in Genesis with God said. Like he starts off as a speaking, declaring God. And we see all throughout Scripture, except for 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? But all throughout the Old Testament, God is speaking and he's saying through prophets and, and God is moving through people and judges and kings. All of these things he's speaking, he's directing, he, he wants to be involved, and then he shows up in Christ, the, the greater, more true prophecy, right? And he speaks through his son, confirming all the things that were said from the prophets. He's a speaking God. So it's not an issue of whether he's speaking. It's a question of whether we're listening, whether we're posturing ourselves, positioning ourselves in such a way that we can hear what it is that God wants to say. So a few couple, just simple ways you can write these down to hear God. Like, that sounds great, but how do I hear God? Are you talking like an audible voice of God, John? No, I'm not talking about that. There's lots of different ways in which God speaks to us. Here's five quick ones. These might not be all of them, but five quick ones. One, through the Bible, through the Scripture. We tend to read a lot of Scripture here on Sunday mornings. Um, that's because... I could be really awful at speaking, but at least we read the Bible, <laughs> right? The, the Bible's really good. So I could be really bad, but the Bible's really good. So there we go. We read scripture and praise God for that. So the Bible is a way. We read through the scripture and we let the scripture speak to us. Not only are we reading the scripture, but we're letting the scripture read us. And so we might read something in the text and be like, oh, that really hits home. Think on that. Listen to that. I know a while ago, especially when I was raising my sons, 
Um, I'm still raising them in some ways, but um, before they moved out and got married, uh, when I was raising my sons, I, I would ha- continually come back to the scripture that says that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Be slow to speak and quick to listen because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I'm Irish and sometimes a little competitive and, uh, and short-fused. <laughs> And so especially when I was much younger, that was hard for me. Like I, would, I, I had to really seek the Lord. I would read that scripture and just prick my heart. It's God speaking to me through his word about how he wants to change my heart. How I need to repent for the moments that I have been short-tempered or short-fused. So through the scripture, God can speak to us through the scripture. God speaks to us uh, in dreams and visions. And this one can get a little tricky because it can get, people can get weird. But can I just tell you, people get weird no matter what. Amen? And like, I, I, you know, even I wrestled to put this in here because people just get weird. And I'm like, do we want to talk about where people get weird? And this is the place where people can totally get weird. I get it. But we worship a God that we believe came and into the earth through a virgin womb and, you know, was, was born the Messiah, lived a perfect sinless life. We believe that all of these prophecies in the Old Testament declared that he was going to come. We believe that there was visions and, and all these things. In the Old We believe all these kind of things. And we believe the scripture says that in, in the, your, your old men are going to dream dreams and your young men are going to see visions. We, the Bible says this kind of stuff. We believe all these kind of things. We believe in the resurrection. Those are crazy things. Virgin birth and resurrection are two like bookends of really radical ideas. We believe those ideas. And so we can't throw out ideas of dreams and visions where the Lord may be speaking to us through these moments. Like we see that God's wanting to do something. We see powerful things that are happening. So we might be in our prayer time, like listening. You might be praying or interceding for the city. And all of a sudden you see people gathering together you just have a vision of like, man, what if we could all get together and worship? That's really how the night of worship sort of came together with the week of prayer. It was sort of a, a vision, an idea of like, what if? I sort of see, what if the churches in the city got together and did this, right? Who knows what God will do? And so dreams and visions. Those dreams and visions must always, please hear me, must always line up with this book, if your dream or vision gets outside of this, then it's no good. No bueno. Um, a few years ago now, I had a young lady who, who wanted to meet with me um, in private, which just doesn't happen. Um, and so I was like, well, no, but my wife can come. and We can meet together with my wife. So we met together at the library. And um, in this meeting... She brought all these books and laid out all of this stuff and she begins to proceed to tell me that she believes that she's, she has been called, she has a vision to be the carrier of the next Messiah. And, and I'm not mocking this poor young lady. She says, the poor lady, I, I'm, her, she's lost. She's, she's, she's deceived about some things. And so I said, I'm sorry, that's, that's not true. That, that violates scripture. There is no other Messiah. And so I began to walk her through, and she was using numerology and all these different books and these different, uh, you know, Japanese um, 
like com comic stuff and like all the stuff was coming together in her mind in this numerology and she and I'm not making fun of this young lady please hear me I'm not trying to use her as an example that says but we can get dreams and visions and she was she believed wholeheartedly and she was also using parts of the bible out of context that that she was to be the carrier of the next messiah and spent a lot of time a couple hours with her in that library walking her through why she is not going to be the carrier of the next Messiah, why Jesus is the only way, and prayed with her, invited her to come back, and that didn't happen, but that's not, you know, I did what the Lord, but you see what I'm saying? So it always has to come back to aligning with this book, Dreams and Visions. I shouldn't have spent so much time on that. Oh my gosh. Uh, third way is in counsel and common sense. And I think sometimes this one is just, we just, Ignore it because it's too familiar. It's, it's such a simple thing. Counsel and common sense. Like the Bible says that there is safety in a multitude of counselors. Safety in a multitude of counselors. I don't know how many times I've had situations over the years of, you know, 25 years of, of youth pastoring and pastoring or whatnot. You have people just, they do crazy things. And like, and, and uh, you know, young man comes to me. He's like, oh, God told me that I was supposed to date this girl. I'm like, okay, you know, God told you you're supposed to date the girl. Sure, he did. Um, that, that may happen, but like, and then he's like, and I, so I told her that God told me I was supposed to date her. And I was like, oh my God, why would you do that? Like, that's manipulation. And like, seriously, why are you manipulating this poor girl's emotions? And then a week later, he broke up with her. I was like, wait, did God lie? Is God confused? And what happened? We had a great conversation. I said, what you did was you ran out ahead instead of just getting counsel and finding out from people who love you and are for you, like, hey, should I approach this this way? Like, dude, you're a teenager. Go see if you want to go to a movie and if you like the girl. Like, that's fine. But you don't need to tell her that God said you're supposed to date her. And then a week later, God said to break up with her. Right? That's crazy. And if he would have just sought a little bit of counsel and also some common sense, we wouldn't have been in that situation, and some emotions could have been saved. They're great kids. Both of them are doing wonderful these days, but common sense. I have no idea what that sound is, you guys. Um, four ways to hear God is in personal reflection. Taking time to sort of allow yourself to reflect on what's going on in your life. Meditations of our heart, like thinking about, reflecting personally. Uh, this is why some people will pray the examine um, daily. And it is as it sounds. They will sit and think about the day that they had lived. How did this last 12 or 16 hours of walking today? I woke up at 5 or 6 a.m. or whatever time it was. And, and my day started and I ran all the way. And here it is at you know 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. And it's taking a quiet moment to think through what was my day like. And then in that examination, that personal uh, sort of reflection, you listen to what is it that God says. And you know, all of a sudden, it might, something might pop up like, hey, remember when you, when you treated that lady poorly because you were in a hurry and she was just trying to do her job? And that wasn't me. And you'd be like, oh, Lord, you're, <laughs> you're right. That, I shouldn't have done that. You know, remember when, you, you know what I'm saying? All of a sudden, you start recognizing moments maybe where, where you fell short. And the Lord can speak to that. We listen. He's speaking. And then lastly, an action. Uh, I love that one because I think 
you know, like even the Great Commission, I think the best way to read the Great Commission is as you go while you're going, make disciples of all men. And, uh, and, and, and it sort of implies that there needs to, you know, stop sitting and waiting for this like lightning, you know, light bulb moment before you start to act upon the things of God. No, go ahead. And as you're acting, listen to what God's doing. As you're sharing, as you're living your life, be attentive to what the Lord is saying. And just a real short story on this. Very short story on this. Um, when I was in Colorado Springs, I used to lead worship. I led worship for 10 years there. And uh, we'd have practice on Thursday nights. And they'd oftentimes go late. They'd run from like 7 to like 9.30 or 6.30 to 9.30, something like that. And um, I was leaving practice um, and I just wanted to go home. My wife had made some spaghetti or something like that. And so I needed to stop at, you can't have spaghetti without good French bread. So I needed to stop at the store to get French bread. And I'm at King Supers, just going to get French bread. It's literally the only reason why I stopped. King Supers is a grocery store, if you didn't know that. Uh, getting French bread. And I'm walking, and I walk by this lady. I'm just actively living my life. And I walk by this lady, and I get this sort of sense that I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to share something with this lady. And this is, again, we believe in the resurrection and the virgin birth. You got, you got, I could see some of you like, that's weird. And they get, remember, we believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection, though. <laughs> Uh, and I just sort of get the sense that I'm supposed to somehow sh share with this lady. I'm supposed to minister to this lady. And, and, and I'm, if I'm being honest with you, I don't want to. I want French bread. I've had a long day and I want to go home. That's what I want to do, you know. But I keep getting this impression that I'm supposed to talk with this lady. And I don't know about what even. I'm like, yeah, great. Well, I don't know her. She doesn't know me. What am I going to, she's on the cheese aisle? I don't want cheese. I want French bread, <laughs> you know? Have her go to the French bread aisle. No, just kidding. Um, and so I really felt, you know, that I needed to share something with her. And that's what I mean. Like, I didn't hear an audible voice from God, like, Ryan, go tell this lady. Did not feel, that didn't happen, okay? But I did sense this sort of prompting to witness to this lady. And I didn't know about what. And so I walk up to her on the cheese aisle, I don't know why she was taking so long to find cheese, but she was. I walk up to the cheese aisle and I said, excuse me, ma'am. This is weird. I know. Um, and you don't know me. I also know that. Um, and as I was just sort of obediently doing it, it just sort of hit me. Like I see this look on her face. And I'm like, I really feel like I'm supposed to apologize to you on behalf of the Lord for how this, the church treated you. And immediately she starts weeping. She starts weeping on the cheese aisle. King Supers, I want French bread. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get a little embarrassed about the situation at this point because maybe people are walking by and like, is there this domestic dispute going on over here? What is this? She is weeping and she had some tragic like blow up at her last church. I don't even know the full details of it. And I, and I said, I just felt like God, you know, that God wants to let you know that you, he just loves you and he's for you. And you might not think that because of what happened, but blah, blah. And so as I was actively just trying to be obedient to the Lord in a weird way, I agree with you, weird way, God was directing and helping and just leading me through it. Um, she ended up coming to our church up the road for a few weeks and crazy part, the craziest part of that story is that she didn't know anybody in the city. 
And when um, her baby passed away of SIDS, like two or three weeks after that encounter, she, the only people she knew to call was the church because we had connected at King Supers. And that's not like, oh, great job, Ryan. No, let me remind you, I wanted French bread. I didn't want to have anything to do with that. I was busy about my own stuff. You know what I'm saying? That sometimes in our action, we've got to listen to what God's doing. And we were able to help her and minister to her. And we sent her and her baby back home to the Midwest and help pay for her funeral and the stuff that was going on. But I just, sometimes I think back, we're like, what if I just decided not to listen to God in that? Surely he would have taken care of her another way, but you all know what I'm saying. So I'm not trying to over-spiritualize that moment. Like, it's just, these are experiences that I've had, like, in action. You know, I probably could list a hundred more where I actually didn't do what I should have done. So um, I'm, I'm like you, oftentimes I I'm, I'm, don't listen as well as I should. But those are some ways, which leads us into repentance. So when we yield to the Lord and we contemplate on his presence and we posture our hearts to listen to him, oftentimes it should bring us to a place of repentance where we profess to God the things that we see in our lives that are falling woefully short of his kingdom purpose and plan. And I want to be clear here. Repentance is not a dirty thing word. I've had some interactions with friends and and people that I used to grow up in with church years ago, and it shocked me that when we started talking about repentance, they approached that as if it's a bad word, like, ooh, you need to repent? You have have to repent? I'm like, yeah, man, daily, a lot. I need to to actively live in a position of repentance because I miss the mark regularly. It's not a dirty word. It's a beautiful word where the kingdom of God is calling us back to his purpose and his way. Repentance is like, listen, you're going the wrong way. Change direction. Come back to me. Our greatest need and God's greatest gift are the same thing. Forgiveness of sins. Our greatest need and God's greatest gift are the same thing. The forgiveness of sins. We need to be forgiven of our sinfulness, our brokenness, the decisions that we make out of that sinfulness and brokenness. That's the beautiful, and the beautiful thing is that God is a forgiving God and he is, he is willing to lavishly pour out his grace upon us because we're in desperate need of it. So we need a practice of examining our own lives, our own hearts, our own motives in order to align them with the kingdom of God. And when we see that our, our lives, our hearts, our motives fall short of the kingdom of God or miss the mark of the kingdom of God, then we repent. Lord, forgive me. I've been, I've been living this the way I want it. I've been in rebellion. I've been doing what I want to do, but you, you are clearly calling me back into your kingdom way of doing this. And so we repent. And the beautiful thing about repentance is sort of the gospel story is summed up in this idea of repentance, that we were sinners and that Christ came to seek and save the lost. He came to pay the price for our sins and that he is willing to and longs to forgive us of our sins. And so John tells us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we will confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins 
and to remember them no more. That God desires that the goodness of the gospel story is that not only does he forgive us the one time, but he will continually forgive us every time if we will come and confess our sins to him. He's faithful. He's just. He's forgiving. And then it's important because we're saying forgive us, right? Repentance. Forgive us as we forgive. So it's important that we don't just align God's forgiveness just for us. God, I'm so thankful. You forgive me. You forgive me. You're so good. You've forgiven me. And then we refuse to forgive others. If we refuse to forgive others, we have a poor understanding of God's forgiveness towards us. And so it moves into reconciliation. This is where the practice really begins. Like, like, God, forgive me. I really screwed that up. I really missed the mark there. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have that. Okay, great. But how about when somebody does something to you? Now what do we do? What does our practice look like? And Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those. Right? So how do we reconcile with people? How do we live in a practice of reconciliation? A revelation of his forgiveness towards us will be demonstrated in our willingness to forgive others. If we're unwilling to forgive others, we have a low view of the forgiveness that we've received. John Bevere said this, he said, a person who cannot forgive has forgotten how great a debt God has forgiven them. And what's difficult about this is there's no caveats to it. <laughs> there's no like levels, right? So if, if they've offended you at a level 10, then by all means, vengeance is yours, right? It doesn't do that. It provides no caveats. It provides no loopholes for us. Jesus demonstrated that at the worst moment, hanging on the cross, beaten, bloodied, the crown of thorns beaten into his brow. I mean, just the worst moment. And he demonstrates, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. So he demonstrates that the worst moment forgiveness is available. And this is the hard part because people hurt people. We could probably go around the room and we definitely don't have time. We could go around the room and have everybody tell the story and we wouldn't do that, but we could have everybody tell the story of their hurts and it would be overwhelming. The room would just be filled with an overwhelming, overwhelming sort of burden of what people have had to go through of other people hurting and wounding them. Parents, mom, dad, best friends, you name it. People hurt people. Why? Because people are hurt people. <laughs> so they do these things. How do we forgive them? The only way that we can forgive other people is to get a high view of the forgiveness that God has given to us. Really understand that we didn't deserve the forgiveness of God, but yet he gave it to us anyways. And I want to encourage everybody here to go later today and read the parable of the unforgiving servant. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. And 
Jesus tells this parable because Peter comes up in, in the only way that Peter knows how to do this. He comes up in, in Peter fashion. And he's like, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven? And he thinks like he's really got a handle on forgiveness. And, you know, the general standard of the day among the rabbis would be three times. If someone offends you, you forgive them three times. If they offend you again, then you take them to court and try to work through it and, and, and wreck or, uh, or get what's due to you. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, that's kind of the general rule of thumb. And so Peter's more than doubled that. He's like, should I forgive them seven times? Seems like a great idea. And Jesus tells him, no, 70 times seven. 70 times 7, which is 490 if you're doing the math. But he's not even saying necessarily 490. What he's saying is it should be just this exponential, like this unending, um, uh, overwhelming forgiveness. Immeasurable forgiveness idea. And he didn't just pull that from anywhere. If you go back and read in your Bible in Genesis, Lamech, who is one of the first sort of wicked people in the Bible, um, you know, as they began to go to war, civilization with civilization, Lamech sort of made this declaration that, if, that he, he wanted people to know that he was a tough guy. And he's like, if you do anything to me, like you even bump me the wrong way, I will come after you. I'll kill your family. I will kill your children. I mean, he like makes this declaration. And he says, 70 times seven, vengeance was his mentality. So Jesus is really sort of countering this idea that happened after the fall of man of, no, 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 70 times seven, mercy, grace, forgiveness. 70 times seven, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And so go read that parable because he, he then uses the parable to say, hey, there's a guy who has managing his accounts and he goes to settle the accounts and this guy owes him 10,000 talents. It's, an, it's, it's a, an amount of money that cannot be repaid. He owes him 10000 and And the guy's like, please, please forgive me. And he's like, no, I'm going to lock you up. I'm going to take you, your family, your children, everybody, put you in slavery and make you pay it back. Please, I can't. I can't afford it. And what does he do? He says, fine. Wipes away the debt. Clears the debt. And that man who was forgiven this, this debt that he could not pay. Not even in his lifetime could he pay it. Not in his children's lifetime could he pay it. He immediately goes out and he finds a guy who owes him 100 denarii, which is like nothing. It's like pennies comparatively. And he grabs him by the throat and he says, pay me what you owe me. He's like, I can't, I can't afford it. I don't know what to do. I can't afford to pay you back. Please have mercy on me. No. And he throws him into prison, refuses to forgive the debt. And Jesus says, this is, this is not good. The guy finds out. They go and tell him, like, hey, the guy you forgave, he just went and like, threw this guy in jail for what he owed. Go read it. He's using this idea of this story. It's not a real story. It's a parable. He's using it to, to, to demonstrate what it looks like to be forgiven of such a great debt that you could never pay. And then to turn around and hold people in unforgiveness and debt over little things. You didn't say hello to me the way I like it. You ignored me walking down the hall. You responded to my Facebook post a certain way. <laughs> God help us with social media. You know what I'm saying? Like we get offended over some of the dumbest things, yet we've been forgiven over the greatest 
need that we ever had. And so go look at that. But forgiveness is sort of a confession. When we, when, we, when we give forgiveness, we're confessing, Lord, I trust you. I trust, I'm confessing that there's hope and there's freedom for all of us. When we, when we forgive someone who's, who's offended us, we're saying, I'm trusting that God's ways are higher than mine, that he said forgive, and so I'm gonna trust that when I forgive, he's going to do a great work. When we, when we forgive, we're confessing that there's a hope for a better future. Without the bitterness and offense, you know, people, uh, you've probably heard it before, but like unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. When I, when I hold unforgiveness or bitterness in my heart, it's like I'm going to drink poison and I hope that it kills you. It's not going to kill the other person. It's killing you. Worship team, you can come on up. And when we, when we engage in this idea of reconciliation, we practice forgiving others. Forgive us as we forgive. We're confessing that we want to be free from the prison of forgiveness, from the prison of bitterness, from the prison of offense. We'll close with this quote from Lewis B. Smeads. He said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that that prisoner was you. So we want to be a people who learn how to get into the presence of God, contemplate his presence, listen for his voice, and as he speaks to us, be willing to repent of the wrongs that we've done and be willing to engage in reconciliation with those who have wronged us. This is the kingdom of God. This is how the kingdom of God works. Amen. Thank you for listening. It's our desire to lead people to know Christ and to make Him known. If you'd like to support the ministry of Hope Assembly, go to hopeassembly.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.